0: Log Talk Radio.
1: Trendlebed Tales Radio Thank you all for tuning in and I hope you enjoy tonight's show This is episode 15 already and between all of the episodes we are up to over 4,500 listens so I'd like to thank everybody for listening in and I just want to remind you that there are a few ways you can do that you can uh, stream it on your computer live you can Call in and actually talk to us. You can also call in just uh, to listen. So if you're out and about during the live show time, you can always do that. You can also listen archive both on the website and also on iTunes under podcasts. Now the numbers for if you want to call in, it's 714-242-5253. That's 714 714- Two four two five two five three or the one eight hundred version one eight seven seven six three three nine three eight nine one eight seven seven six three three nine three eight nine. Now that gets us up to just a little bit of housekeeping. And what we're going uh, to be looking ahead for future episodes, uh, we've just finished doing a series of roving reporter uh, things from my trip to and Walnut Grove. So far we've had part one and part two, and I'm probably am going to end up doing another little 15-minute roundup to finish off the trip tomorrow even though I'm home already uh, because uh, Monday I just didn't get a chance to and it's just been that kind of week. But I found out a few more things about DeSmed and Walnut Grove and I think you'll be interested. So look for that. to Show up sometime tomorrow afternoon depending on how the day goes. Uh, and be sure to go back and, and check those Roving Reporter episodes if you have missed them if, and you're a Laura Ingalls Wilder fan. I also want to let you know that the episodes that are just travel episodes, travel times, we've got another one of those scheduled, and it's going to be on Monday night at 10 p.m. Eastern Time, 9 p.m. Central Time, 8 p.m. Mountain Time, and 7 p.m. Pacific Time, where we're going to actually join, have my mom join us, and we're going to be talking about taking a trip to the Iowa State Fair So I think that you'll enjoy that, and uh, then we're looking at um, having Kitty Latane from the Pep and Laura site come on sometime in August. So that's what you got to look forward to, and we're about ready then to turn to tonight's theme, which is one-room schools. Now. I had done an earlier uh, 30-minute episode where I was just kind of giving you a little background information on one-room schools. Tonight, we're actually going to be talking with someone who I think definitely qualifies as an expert on the topic, uh, specifically music in one-room schools, and she's just a great person to talk to anyway, so I think you're all going to really enjoy tonight's show. And let's bring Pam Stover back on the air. Hello, Pam. Hi, Sarah. So uh, why don't you just start out by telling people just a little bit about who you are and what you do as your real-life job.
0: Oh, my real-life job. I have so many, from being church organist to teaching children to teaching people how to be music teachers. So, yes, I am a music professor, and um, one of my passions is one-room schools as well as music that went on in the one-room schools.
1: Well, I think that's something that is that we can all really be interested in because it is an important part of the the school curriculum.
0: Yes, well, I think it's very important. Some some of our um, funding is getting cut all over the United States, but we all know that um, strong arts and creative thinking makes brains stronger and makes people um, more productive, and so the, keeping the arts in the schools is very important. It was very important to the people in um, earlier times when they just had their country schools. They, they did do um, arts in the forms of crafts mostly, and um, certainly music, whether it was just simply singing a patriotic song or two or a hymn in the morning, or whether they had a regular music period. It well, was an th- important part of the the fabric of the culture.
1: Well, you, you're right when you say that about art. You see a lot of times, like in the catalogs and in the, the teacher magazines directed at one-room the schools, they'd want prints of classic pictures. And in some ways, I think they were probably better versed in, in the classics anyway than, than students today. Well,
0: they might have been. Um, It was interesting. In many of the states, they had a standardized school movement, which was to help um, get the curriculum and the equipment better in some of the poorer schools. So everything from having good sanitation with the toilet system or the outhouse system to having a a good functioning um, wood-burning or coal-burning stove to having art prints on the walls to having a certain number of library books, musical instruments, proper-sized desks and chairs. These things were important. And in some states, like in Ohio, the schools could actually earn um, prizes or premiums, like they could win or earn a hanging globe that hangs from the ceiling. And so you can Mm. see where all the – the countries were in real 3-D, um, or they could get maps or um, books, measuring cups, farm equipment, all kinds of things. Mm-hmm. So these were things that, that the schools did, and it was just a way to help um, make education a priority and to help schools that weren't meeting the grades, you know, if you didn't have A good well or good good toilet system is a little bit hard to teach, even, even though lots of times you'd have a good teacher in a school that had bad facilities. It just really
1: helped the students learn a lot if you had good facilities, good equipment, and a good teacher. Right. Um, well, let's back up just a little bit, and part of the reason why we wanted to have you on tonight was because of a special event that's going to be happening where I live in, in the Iowa City Coralville area, and that's the Johnson County Iowa Country School event, and you are going to be one of the speakers for it.
0: Yes, um, for the kick, one of the kickoff events on Wednesday, August 10th, at the um, Johnson County Historical Society Museum at 5.30, we're going to have a talk about music in one-room schools, and um, there's a doctoral student from the University of Iowa also speaking. She'll speak about Charles Fullerton's methods of teaching, and I'll talk a little bit about that today, too, and then I'm going to be talking about um decorate the school and invite the neighbors, all kinds of programs and and extra kinds of music activities that we had in the one room school. So I'll do everything but Fullerton. Um, I'm also going to be doing something that morning at the Iowa City Library for the Children's Story Hour. We're, We're going to be reading some books that are songs that were sung in the one-room schools and playing some of the games that went along with it, such as Old MacDonald and Hickory Dickory Dock, those kinds of things with the young children. Um, this festival goes from August 10th until, I believe that it goes till Sunday, August 14th is the culminating activity, and there's a reunion lunch for the people who went to the school there. And the school is in Coralville, and it's a really interesting school because it's not a one-room school. It's a two-room school, and you have one room on the main floor and then one room in the upstairs. And I'm very anxious to go back to see it because the last time I was there, they were still renovating and hadn't gotten any of the decorations up or the desks in or anything in the upstairs. So it's going to be exciting to see, see that brick building. It's a beautiful little school.
1: Yeah, I really think that's a a very unique thing. The bottom floor for everybody uh, is restored to about the first year of the school, which is 1877, and then the top floor, which they're still working on, but uh, they're... Um, going to be restoring and have got sort of the basics in for restoring it to the late 1930s, early 1940s, which was some of the last years of the school. And I think it's going to be when once it's all up and completely finished, it's just going to be so interesting because so many people seem to have in their heads, you know, sort of an, a single experience of one room school and it they really did change over the decades and over the state that you were in and even district to district
0: right and it's and it it i think that um last i talked to the curator they were going to put some pictures in the stairwell that led from the beginning of the school till the end of the school i don't know whether they have that project finished yet or not but that's such a clever way to show how time passes too is to um have a few things that are in between, kind of in between the two floors. But it's it's a it's really great to have something that's in the eighteen seventies because oftentimes our schoolhouses are interpreted in oh maybe the nineteen twenties, maybe the nineteen hundreds in in the Midwest. Now out east there there are several that are older. In fact our country school association of America did a tour and We saw schools that were in the 1700s out in New Jersey, and it was just absolutely incredible to see these old, old, old schools, whereas in Iowa, Illinois, and the Midwest, we're used to seeing our schools in about
1: 1920, maybe 1940, sometime 1900s. It's uh, funny, too, because I talk to, around here, a lot of times you'll get people who are complaining that they're trying to do a later school period, and they get people dressing up as, as, uh, well, my favorite person, Lauren Goldswilder wilder with the long prairie dresses, and Susan Feynman, who's got a school out on the East Coast, says that their people show up as pilgrims. And oh yes. Yeah. <laughs> and, that <just> <laughs> and that's not that's funny. totally
0: not appropriate yeah. if you're if you're trying to trying to be accurate with your with your um interpretation. But um for some
1: people that's as close as they can get. <laughs> yep. It's an interesting thing. Well, uh which Kind of brings us to round to talking a little bit about how we met each other was through the Country School Association of America, and uh, the which is the national association for uh, country schools or one-room schools, and it focuses on museums and people who are interested in research and people who are still in active one-room schools. Some people are surprised to uh, learn that there are still active one-room schools in America. Uh, and I haven't made it to the last two Two conferences where I'm hanging, hanging my head in shame because I do do the list, the list serve and I should have made it this year but I just didn't. And with they everything were going. they were truly wonderful conferences. Oh yeah, make it worse.
0: Yes, yes I'll I'll so, make it worse. So uh, <laughs> the next time I say please come, please come. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was. It
1: was a busy year for me, but uh, I think it's well worth going to the trip. Was there any highlights from uh, this year's conference that you wanted to share? This year's conference, I thought that the tour, this conference
0: always sets up on a Monday and a Tuesday with and um, things that are kind of on the campus. And we did actually go out to a farm, which um people who are in Iowa would know Living History Farms. This was not as elaborate as that, but it, it was restored. And we have a lady who has been looking for school bus hacks and Surreys. This was mm-hmm. a Surrey. They actually had one and it was restored. Ooh. And Sarah, you know who I'm talking about, and she was so thrilled and we all had to have pictures in this school bus Surrey oh. that would have been pulled by horses. And they had a restored school, and this had been a place that was a chicken farm. And the, the chicken houses were three stories tall and had, you know, 2,000 chickens in this building, and they had 4,000 chickens in another building. And it was so incredible to me to see this old, old, old farm that had mm. that many chickens, because that's a lot of chickens. Yes. Well, you know, uh,
1: my, they my... Had the, school right, the school was right next to the chicken barns. Too. Yeah. Well, the, yeah, my grandfather drove a school bus in in the 30s for a while. He had one of the first motorized ones. It is interesting to see that. I mean, yeah, see, I am even more upset I didn't get you. Know. And um, the
0: other thing was
1: the tour because. After we have our two days
0: of talks and clinics and um, people show pictures of their restorations and we had a screening of the a movie that uh, documentary that will be shown at the Johnson County celebration about Iowa One Room Schools by the Ren- Rundles. Tammy and Kelly Rundle made the mm-hmm. documentary. And it's one school, um, let's see, what's it called? country school, One Room, One Nation. And it's absolutely incredible. And it does feature the Coralville School that will be um, hosting the celebration. But after we do all the things that are like in a college campus or a hotel, then we go out for a whole day on a one-room school tour. And so this year, we were in New Jersey, and everything was so old. And it was so nice to have um, some different centuries represented. And so that was a wonderful tour throughout, just in one county in New Jersey, and the the schools were stone and brick, and just very uh, very different in architecture. And most of them had a great big, huge fireplace with some kind of a kettle on really? it, we would have a pot belly stove. Now, last year we were in Oklahoma, and that was the longest bus tour i think we have ever had and i have been pretty much everywhere in central oklahoma now from south up up to no man's land up in up in the north and all of the historic villages um had such a cowboy and indian theme and of course the native americans still had still own much of the land in oklahoma and so we got to see the differences between um one room schools for native americans for African Americans and for the white settlers, and all kinds of um, Wild West gear and railroad things and oh, just all kinds of Western items and everything is so vast. Um, but I was thrilled that most of the museum places on that tour. Um, Mrs. Ant, who lives in Pennsylvania, is restores old pump organs and she and I would always make a beeline for there's a pump organ always and we would always see if it still worked and it usually did and and lots of them collected all of their musical instruments out in Oklahoma which that surprised me too because I thought that Mm. would be a little bit more of a wild west and they wouldn't have you know fine china brought over quite as much and the fine furniture but um, apparently these things were important to the early settlers settlers in Oklahoma. And it that was a fascinating tour and um very long because it took hours to go between one school and the next. So it was a good time to take a nap on the bus in between or to chat with people about what was going on in, in their schools. So that's that's a, a fun thing. So if you're interested in history and schools, you might want to look into the Country School Association of America and see where the next conferences and the next one i believe is in ames iowa
1: it is is in. it's going to be in ames this next year and i have definitely got it on my calendar in pen so i'm going to definitely make it this next time uh but i um well now i said that i have it on my agenda in pen because i don't actually think i have the dates yet and i'm totally putting you on the spot have you heard what they are It's in June, and I believe it begins on Father's Day, so whatever date that would be. That's typically...
0: um, Yes, that was an unfair uh,
1: question. I didn't tell Pura that I was going to ask her that, so that's my fault. Okay.
0: (laughs) And I think we're going to see uh, school restoration in Boone and do some touring at Iowa State, and um, I don't know whether Living History Farms will be involved or not in that, but if it's not, that's a nice place for people to visit, Either before or after the conference, because they do have a school and a village, interp- and farms interpreted in many different eras.
1: Yes, they have a nice. Uh, the the far the town is 1870s, and they've got a real nice uh, 1870s setup in the school. Uh, so if anybody out there is interested, the website is www.countryschoolassociation.org and they also have a YouTube channel under uh, Country School Association of America and you can also find us on Yahoo Groups at http colon slash slash groups dot Yahoo.com slash group slash one room, which I didn't even have that one up. That was just from memory, so be impressed with that. Uh, and you can I join our list, <laughs> And you can join the listserv. But there's also some, if you were interested in, in what we were talking about for the conferences, they have some nice little videos sort of high, giving the highlights of uh, the, the last couple conferences. So I would uh, strongly recommend that you go in, and take a look at that. Uh, now, having done all that, why don't we dive into the music part? So how did you get interested in music in one-room schools? Well, it's kind
0: of interesting. Uh, you know, I've, I've heard my parents and their brothers and sisters talking about their time at one-room schools because they all were educated in one-room schools, Um my father only up to second grade, but everybody else went through all eight grades in the one room schools in Winnebago County, Iowa. Um, and so that was just always part of the folklore of our family. And I had one of my grandma's music books because I was the grandchild that had showed lots of interest in music, and so she had given me uh, several of her music books. And it wasn't till I was in college that I – was looking for "Hail, hail, the gang's all here," and um, for he's a jolly good fellow. Some of those old songs, and I couldn't find them anywhere. And so I just happened to look through Grandma's book, and there they were. And so I kept the book handy when I was teaching because anytime I wanted an old song, it seemed to be in that book. And that huh. book was Charles Charles Fullerton's A One-Book Course for Music for One Room in Rural Schools. And fast forward, you know, 15 years, and I go back to school to get a doctorate, and I'm thinking about a topic. And I had taken a historical research methods class that I just absolutely loved, and we were supposed to bring in an artifact. And so I thought, well, I'm going to bring in my grandma's teaching book. And so I brought it in, and we measured it, and cataloged it, and did a content analysis, and all the things that people who do historical research do when they have an artifact, and you need to catalog it. And um, my professor hadn't really seen a book like that before, and so I thought, huh, well that's interesting. And I decided to take it to my dissertation chair, and she was an expert in elementary music and collected folk songs, and if. If it was out there, she knew it. And she had not seen a book like that either. And she said, hmm, this is a little bit early to have these kinds of play party games because the book was in the 1920s. And it showed some Dalcro's Eurythmics, which was a method of teaching um, through movement that happened in Europe. And um, Charles Fullerton had actually studied with um, Dalcro's, some of the Dalcro's principles, and had I have evidence that it's early in America, probably not the first, but it's it's very early in this book. And she looked at it, and she says, I don't know this book. I don't know this, this writer. I, this is for one-room schools? I didn't, you know, we're going, there isn't, we don't know what this is. And I thought, oh, I think I have a dissertation topic. Huh. So I started looking around, and... There are some people that have written about some aspects of one-room schools, and I knew that Eunice Boardman, who is a very um, prominent music professor at the University of Illinois and the University of Wisconsin, I knew that she had gone to a one-room school because she talked about it all the time. And I knew that the man that I was the graduate assistant for, Stan Slater, had gone to a one-room school because he was raised in South Dakota, and he talked about how he grew up in the one-room school and how he had read their whole library, and then he would say with a wink and a grin I don't usually tell people it was only one one little shelf of books and I knew lots of people in music education who had started out in the humble one-room school and I also know that there's a lot of people out there with PhDs in other subjects that came from a farming background or a rural background and had attended one-room schools and so I'm thinking I think that there might be something to this so we need to see what's going on with music because that's my field and um to see what was successful or not successful in the one room schools because we really in music we only have good histories of things that happened in boston and cincinnati a little bit st louis some in philadelphia and pittsburgh some new york city washington dc those kinds of centers with um they usually had a prominent music educator, and there was a well-developed curriculum, and then people would write about it. But we don't really know what was going on in the rural areas. And so I decided to start delving into this, and, boy, is there is there a lot to, to learn, because each state did things differently. And then each state not only did everything differently, but then each local school district or each county would have – something that was a little bit different, and then each school, of course, depending on the qualifications of the the teacher, would either have lots of music or maybe not have music at all. Um, One of my mother's best friends says, oh, we never had music in my school. I thought, huh, okay, and my mom said, oh, we sang all the time. And then you can hear from one to another, oh, well, we only sang when we had this teacher or we had a pump organ but nobody knew how to play it or this, or that, or the other thing. So um, actually I got really interested in the one-room schools because I have a strong affinity for my grandmother, and I loved her little book that she had given me. And I was looking for a dissertation topic, and it's just turned into something very fascinating for me. I'm working on a book singing with the school marm, which will be published hopefully before I die, but these (laughs) things take so much time, you know. Yes. And um, I want to look at what's going on in more than just the Midwest. So it's taking me a little bit more time to find out what was going on in, you know, Florida and New England in a wider time span. So. That's how I got going with it, and it's just it's been very fascinating because through the One Room School and looking at music education history through a rural lens has made um, my teaching better and my understanding of how you can teach not just the musically gifted and talented but everybody and how music is important to communities,
1: and it really is important to communities. Well, it really, I mean, the the one-room school was sort of the heart and soul of the community and a lot of that you know the the older I get, the le- the least I like uh or the less I like solos and people just getting up and and performing because you know, when somebody sings together, you feel like you're so much a part of the community, if um, more so than if you're listening to somebody. I would rather be part of a group of off-key singers than listen to the most perfect voice, because you just I think it has so much more of a connection to you,
0: mm-hmm. and it mm-hmm. and
1: it really makes you feel um, well part of part of the group. And I think people I think have a real need for that. that right?
0: mm-hmm. They, they certainly do. It was really interesting that you mentioned being part of a, a one group of off-key singers. That's how Charles Fullerton, who was the music education professor or the public school music professor, as they called it back then, at the University of Iowa, or as it was called back then, um, Iowa State Normal School, and then Iowa State Teachers College, um, He was taking some visiting dignitaries out to a country school for a teaching demonstration and it was at that time they had a five minute music period every day and it was time for the music period to come and he was of course interested in that being the music professor. And the teacher just did not want to have this. She said, no, we'll just skip that. We'll do this instead. And he said, no, we need to do this. And apparently the music lesson was so awful, he could hardly stand it. And then he looked at the children, and he thought he had to come up with a way to teach those children music because just because they had a teacher that had no musical talent whatsoever, in fact, she was kind of amusical, apparently, from the writings that that I've been reading, that they shouldn't be handicapped and have the joy of music not in their life just because their teacher wasn't musical. And so he was trying to think of a way that music could be taught to everybody, whether they had a teacher or not. And so the Victrola was newly used in education, and he thought that he could take the Victrola out and so he did this for a while, but then he discovered that there really weren't any um, recordings that had songs for the children to sing with. They, they weren't children's songs. You would have opera singers or orchestras or piano pieces on the Victrola, but they really weren't songs to sing along with. Like you said, you feel the sense of community when you're singing along. And so he thought that it would be a good thing to use the Victrola as the teaching Device And his friend, Francis Clark, who was one of our founders of our Music Education National Conference, our big um, national organization for music education, um, she was working at that time at uh, Victor Victrola, or the Victor Talking Machine Company, in the education department. So she was already collecting um, folk songs and ethnic songs and and symphony songs. pieces for the symphony and pieces to use for music appreciation in school settings. And Charles Fullerton asked her, could we please have a record that has songs that the children can sing? And so she thought that that was a brilliant idea. And he came up with a way that that um, in the booklet, one phrase would be marked T or maybe p or v depending on whether it's a phonograph or a victrola and then the other phrases would be marked either c for class or s for student and so they could alternate singing the harder or the easier phrases so they decided to press a record and this was actually the first recording ever made that was correlated with a music textbook and now oh. if you look in in schools today everything's recorded they have um all the musical examples, um, samples of the different instruments, interviews with famous people, they're all recorded. Everything's on a CD, or it's actually its digital now, too, so you can just click on your um, iTunes or whatever you're using for your digital music. Um, so this was an, a very new thing, so they could crank up the Victrola, and there would be the song in the book, and the first recording was made by Olive Klein and she's a soprano and her voice is very high and I have heard it and the little songs, you know, that it crackles along as you listen to them and um they aren't very famous songs. Some of them are folk songs, but lots of them are just little simple songs that would be done at the time. And then the children would sing along. And so that was Charles Fullerton's first step to bring music to the classes that didn't really have a music teacher. And he thought that it was a great idea for the children to sing along. Um, Later, this this developed into a music curriculum. So he had his little one-room school book, and he took... Um, ten songs for each year, and he had an eight-year rotation because usually you were in the one-room school for eight years. You went through grades one through eight, and then if you passed your eighth-grade graduation test, you could go to the high school, or lots of people didn't go to the high school. They just went to work on the farm or work, work someplace else after that. Um, so he had an eight-year rotation in his list of songs and came up with what's called the Iowa Choir Plant. And this was a way for the students to memorize and sing 10 songs a year. And they would sing it with the use of the instrument. And the instrument, in this case, was the Victrola. And back in the 1920s, then, they were wanting to measure things scientifically, so the singing could be measured against the scientific accuracy of the instrument. And if the child could do it, they got a plus mark for that song and they could sing in the school choir for that song. If they didn't get it yet, they would have a minus and then they could go back and try it again on another day and see if you could change the minus to a plus. So then the school had an option to have a choir. And this was usually for grades four, five, six, seven, and eight. Um, He did make a junior list for the first, second, and third graders, and they would have little um, nursery rhyme songs like Mary Had a Little Lamb or something simple like that. Um, Lots of times you'd have a patriotic song like America on there. With the upper grade list, there was always one or two songs that had two parts in them so they could learn how to sing in harmony. Um, So the, the child who was being examined against the instrument would go up and They'd crank up the Victrola, and then the child would sing, and then the teacher would mark down either a plus or a minus. Um, I did do some oral history interviews with all of my living relatives, and my uncle, Stanley, was just, he said he hated it. That was just not his favorite thing to do. And Stanley really doesn't like to sing, but he he does a fine job of it you know he he's not just pitching everything but it was just not something that he liked doing and he just remembers oh i remember that and and i didn't like doing that but um on my mother's side they didn't do this in their school because they don't really remember it one of my aunts remembers getting the choir list so when she was a teacher she would use that and this went on for you know, 20-some
1: years in the state of Iowa. So what, what, like, roughly decades are we looking at?
0: Um, starting in the late 1920s and then um, into the 1940s, like 1945-ish. I've got a choir chart from 1943, I believe, in my dissertation. And so people could be doing this. It was really big um 1929, 1930, 1931, um, Jessie Parker was the state superintendent of rural schools, and she and Charles Fullerton thought that it would just be a grand idea if some of these children could get together to sing. Now, this started out in um, uh, several counties would have just the kids who – made the school choir for all ten songs, they could go to the county and then they would all sing together those songs for the eighth grade graduation ceremony that was usually held at the county seat and there's pictures of them in Muscatine County and Emmett County and many of the different counties and usually Irving Wolfe and Charles Fullerton would go around and do the guest conducting and the children could sing after one rehearsal because they all learned the songs with the same way with the, with the Victrola, so they usually didn't have trouble blending their voices because they learned them all exactly scientifically the same way. So they, the county choir idea was just such a great idea, and it was, um, of course, made front page in the newspaper, and there's pictures
1: of the children singing as well. And I'm sure it was a big experience for them because a lot of these country school kids going to the county seat was just a, a big deal just with that. And to be the suddenly the focus of all this attention must have been quite the, the experience.
0: Yes, yes, and especially if it wasn't even your graduation. You know, maybe it was your older brother or sister's graduation, and you're the younger sibling, and you get to sing in the choir with all these other children. A little cute little oral history story from a woman that was in one of these county choirs. She said, oh, and Dr. Fullerton was such a vigorous Scotsman, and he would start to make everybody feel at home because he would say, look at the person next to you. Tell them what your name is. And so they'd turn and and they'd say, oh, I have forgotten my name. But then it was funny because everybody was turned the same way, so you're looking at the back of somebody's head. And so they they all got to laugh and break the ice a little bit. And then, um, of course, make friends with people that they would later go to high school with. And these county choirs were so successful. Um, Fullerton and then Jesse Parker decided that they would do a, a, a state fair choir. So they had 15 songs that they had to learn. And they had between five and 6,000 students in the state of Iowa wow. in the rural schools that qualified for this. State Fair Choir, they did this in 1929, 1931, perhaps 1930. I should have looked these dates up before. As a historian, I should be really good with dates, huh? <laughs> <laughs> and they had over 3,000 that actually showed up and got there. And there's there's stories about... Um, this choir that it was so remarkable that they didn't need to be amplified for the radio broadcast on WHO radio from the state fair. And they have a backdrop and there's so many children in this choir. You can't even see the faces, it's just a sea, sea of children. And, uh, Jesse Parker had asked that they all were, the girls would wear um, three yellow ribbons in their hair and that the boys would have a yellow little tie so that they, looked a little bit alike and apparently it was dreadfully hot the first day that they went a little girl who was in the choir wrote later in her memoirs that um, her father had brought them strawberry soda and a sandwich at lunch to try to make her feel better because it was so hot and it, it made her sick But she got on stage at the grandstand anyway, and then her father rewarded her with a little trip to the midway. So if you didn't live near Des Moines, this would have been just an outstanding and wonderful little field trip. But knowing how far the corners of Iowa are from Des Moines, there were many children that didn't get to go. But they had over 90 counties represented
1: out of the 99, and that's
0: absolutely wonderful.
1: Yeah, my family started going uh, pretty much every year starting in the 30s, and they went by Model T, and my great-grandmother had a washer tub that she filled with chunks of ice from the ice house, and they had fried chicken in there, and it was just, it just boggles my mind that they would do that and manage to get to Des Moines. The primitive camping, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Just amazing. There's another story. After the state fair
0: conference, the the first state fair choir was so successful, um, they were invited to sing at the North Central Music Educators Conference in 1930-1931. Um, and there, and it was in Des Moines at the Shrine, Shrine Auditorium, the big auditorium that's been torn down since then. But um, apparently, there's so many farm. Uh, Mules and carts and and the old track truck, the the farm trucks and things that were hauling children in, and it was a little odd to see this in downtown Des Moines. There was the the executive director of the Music Educators National Conference, was a city boy and he didn't know anything about these uh, this country school choir phenomenon that they had in Iowa, and he was wondering why there were all these mules and horses munching hay in the middle of Des Moines, and then he found out when he went into the auditorium that they obviously belonged to the farm farm, farm folk who brought their children in for this choir festival, and again, they didn't need amplification, and the music educators in all of the surrounding states from Iowa were in attendance here, and Um, This idea just went like crazy. Um, Charles Fullerton was actually supposed to present this at an international conference in Switzerland, and he took his family with him, and they stopped in Paris on their way, and unfortunately, Mrs. Fullerton had a misstep when she got off of a streetcar, and she was killed. Oh, my. So so his idea didn't get presented at this international conference, but... um, uh, Frances Clark, who was the woman at Victor Victrola, helped get some MENC folks to help meet the Fullertons as they brought Mrs. Fullerton back to Iowa um, to be buried. But after that, Charles still went out and did did all these county choirs in many states. I'm finding evidence in Missouri and Tennessee, Illinois, Montana, all over the place this idea took. And it, it really started in Um, up by Cedar Falls, Iowa, in a little one-room school that had a very non-musical teacher whose name was not named, and that's probably a good thing for her.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I remember you saying you were very disappointed about the one-room school museum at the University of Northern Iowa campus uh, since it was actually dated to before Charles right.
0: It's, they, they interpret their their school in, oh, was it 1922 or 1920? And it was right before Fullerton's one-room school books really came out. He had pressings in 1925, 26, 28. And all of the, all of the good Fullerton materials are about five years after the interpretation at the University of Northern Iowa. Um but, I really admire the fact that um Sue and the folks up there at at you and I have taken a literal interpretation, and they really don't have a hodgepodge of items from many different eras cluttering it yeah. up but i personally, I would love to see a little Fullerton shrine in the corner you know the, the, <laughs> here's here's the things that happened here. Well, with, maybe, they'll have to have a, it's
1: so maybe they'll have to have a second, uh, second school restored there sometime. To have a second school. it <laughs> so would be the full oh. school. Well, in to Smet I just got from, they have, uh, it's a very small town, but they have three restored one-room schools just in the area, and one of them is just dedicated to Harvey Dunn, um, the artist. So I don't know why they couldn't dedicate one just to Charles Fulton, the music professor. But, yeah. um, I, so... I once uh this is just a story I I've, I've heard you told me but I wanted to share with everybody cause, oh uh before we get into that I did want to take a chance to give everybody the numbers just one more time in case anybody wants to call in we got about 15 minutes left see I told you it would go quick uh the, yes. number, the number is 714-242-5253 That's 714-242-5253 or 1877 Six three three nine three eight nine that's one eight seven seven six three three nine three eight nine, and you can call in to talk now or next time we have an episode if you're out and about, you can always listen in on your cell phone or your regular phone because it is toll free, okay, having said that um. You told a story about one thing that your father said was different when he went from a country school to a town school, and I always thought that was a great little story.
0: Into town. Well, you know, you have to think when you're looking at historic one-room schools that sometimes they had running water, and sometimes they didn't. And sometimes they had electricity, and sometimes they didn't. And so with the equipment, like the radios and the Victrolas, they would have... um, battery-powered radios that were designed for rural schools or you could have ones that plugged in. You could have a phonograph that plugged in or you could have the wind-up Victrola. And when my father went to country school, they didn't have electricity but they had running water. Now, when the family was in South Dakota, it was the other way around. They had electricity but no running water. They had to haul their water. So it's always interesting to see what you have and what you don't have, and people take it for granted that you have these things in a school, but not necessarily. So my father had his first two years in a uh, one-room school in between Thompson and Leland, Iowa, up in Winnebago County. And they, he remembers the Victrola. And he remembers singing a little bit with it. And then in third grade, he went to town school in in Thompson, Iowa. And he told me, he says, well, you know, you didn't do a formal interview with me, but I need to tell you something, that when I went to town, I realized that the songs didn't slow down at the end. And I looked at him and I said, what? He says, well, in the country school, the songs all slowed down at the end because the Victrola was winding down. And I just thought that 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 was a precious little second grader memory of his country school, that that he remembers that. And he's not a real big musician either, and so for that that to be stuck in his brain for a long time, it did impress on him. But he was so surprised in town school. You know, they had to make sure that they had good shoes on and things like that and and take a bus and those kinds of things, and that the the songs didn't get slower at the
1: end in town. (laughs) I just love that. (laughs) <laughs> and that maybe should work into your subtitle of your book because that just I I just love that story. <laughs> um, so a uh, lots of oh, one thing that I know you've worked on is looked at uh, summaries of equipment lists for what one-room schools had. So I just wanted to ask you a little bit about the musical uh, side of that. A lot of one-room school museums have a piano. How typical was that really when they were active?
0: Um, It was fairly typical and it could have been a piano that they got as a gift from a a family or it could have been um, uh, in the early 1900s, it was more common to have a – they were cheaper, they were lighter weight and the mice didn't bother them quite so much plus the school might have been also used as a church. And so lots of times you will have the piano or the organ, especially if the, if the school was used as church or community center, which oftentimes it was. Um, lots of times it will not have a pump organ or a, sorry, a, player piano and in some schools you'll see the really fancy player pianos and that usually was not happening in the farm towns that that would be something that would be from in town unless there was a donor on that um lots of times the the people in the one room school would have a box social with some entertainment my aunt alice told me about the um the the fun music that they had after the box social after the parents went home and then the high school students would have their little dance in the in the schoolyard and and they could they could meet oh perhaps a new boyfriend or a girlfriend at at those dances after the parents had left so they they would have um a community center going on there um lots of times those musicians they would bring guitars perhaps in a fiddle maybe an accordion um depending on the ethnic background of the town too so um but not usually a a player piano that would have been too fancy Um, and the pump organ was a little bit more common than people think think of um the victrola was often purchased with money from a box social lots of times you'll see a list of the equipment that was um, purchased with the money from the box social and they would have you know some Baseballs and a Victrola, or some rec- records that went along there, or maybe even a radio. Now, the radio was a little bit interesting, too, because in Iowa, um, lots of teachers mentioned that they could get WOI or the um, other affiliates for the public radio stations and listen to some music appreciation type programs now in wisconsin edgar b gordon actually taught children how to sing and read music over the radio with a song mm. called a program called let's sing and journeys in music land and there's lots of wisconsin been, he then they had a joint choir of all the children that had performed the songs up in wisconsin they had to have it at their ag pavilion in madison because there was no other building that was big enough to house this thing so we've had um not just in Iowa, but in other states, you have these big choirs of folks from the country coming together to sing. So the, uh, the radio was also used a little bit, too. Um, it's a little bit expensive because if you look at the prices, you know, you would see something, you know, would say a radio would be, you know, $17 or $20, and you don't think that that's that much. But if that's how much the teacher was paid for a month, that is a lot of
1: money. It is. I could see that, definitely. That's probably why it had to be a fundraising, because it would be a a special extra thing, not just from Mm -hmm. the regular taxes that they got. Mm
0: -hmm. And kind of interesting, you know, if they didn't even have indoor plumbing, but they would have some of the equipment... It it was just interesting to see where priorities laid and and, um, to see the development of, you know, what did they do for school lunches and what did they do for their toilet facilities and what did they do for um, heating and cooling and those those kinds of issues as um, time went on.
1: It it is, uh, I think, very interesting to see, you know, how those changes came in uh, across the decades. And and my mom, who went to one-room school, uh, also talks about, you know, that they had certain radio shows that were on at certain times and they'd tune in. And people a lot of times associate uh, the radio with electricity, of course, but in rural areas, radio came in before electricity because they would have special battery packs for them. Right. And, and so, one
0: time, there's a story in Wisconsin that the school battery pack went out on um, on the radio, and it was time for Journeys in Music Land And the children heard a car coming down the road, and so they made uh, 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 joined hands and blocked the road in a blockade, and they made the man who was driving stop. And they all huddled around the car and sang along with his radio because <laughs> they didn't want to miss miss the program. But I think that that's interesting. I do need to tell a little one-room school story about how do people get to school because we had mentioned the school bus surrey, which would mm-hmm. be, would have been pulled by horses, and there's also hacks. But um, before children would walk, and oftentimes the, the school teacher would walk. And it's uh, yes, there were men school teachers. It wasn't just women, and yes, there were married school teachers as well, depending on where you were and what time period you were. But um, my grandmother was teaching in a one-room school in Winnebago County, as she did for 17 years, which was a very long time to be teaching in the one-room schools. And her youngest sister was in her class, and there was a little another little girl that her youngest sister was friends with in that class. They were the only two in that grade. And Vera and Lucille, Lucille was a sister, they sat in a double desk, Vera loved school. Lucille hated it. But Vera was brought to school every day by her uncle on a horse. And her uncle ended up falling in love with a school marm, and they got married because my grandfather <laughs> brought Vera to school, and my grandmother was the school marm. And so we've we've got just a charming charming little story on if 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 Grandpa hadn't brought his niece to school on the horses. We might not even be here.
1: <laughs> that is a great story i didn't I don't think I'd heard that one. Harry I thought they I had all your best one room school stories, but I get oh guess- no. there's 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 lots there's <laughs> lots to go. Well, maybe we'll have to have you back again sometime. We've got about, um, well, just under five minutes, but I did want to ask you one thing, because one of the things that we do as part of the Country School Association of America is we're trying to get more accurate information in one-room schools. So what would be the most common piece of misinformation you find about music in one-room schools as you go around and tour these places?
0: Well, sometimes um what records are in the if there's if there's recordings in the schools, they would just have gotten like a donation from an area family and it might be, you know, orchestra recordings or operas or things like that. And the school probably didn't have those. Um, most of the schools did have God bless America in the forties when that when that went through forties and fifties, that was very popular. But um that didn't happen much. Uh, it was kind of like, you know, the dunce cap thing. You know, I don't know many schools that actually use the dunce cap. And let's see, school moms were married or single, and there were men. Um, but with music, lots of times you think that they they either didn't have it or they did have it. And usually it would be just dependent on whether the school teacher was musical or they had a child who could play the piano or the pump organ to a company, and um, I, th- I don't know, I, I don't think that they had music very much as a regular period, and it depends on the time period that you're looking at, too, whether it was taught by songs or whether they were just supposed to go through music theory, and that just didn't work in the one-room schools. They were better off singing songs, and usually it was in for five minutes in the morning or right after lunch as a, an opening You do the pledge and maybe there might be a Bible reading or a hymn sung depending on the school and then a patriotic song and maybe some other songs and maybe a little reading from a book or a poem and that was their little formal opening either before lunch or after lunch or right when school started. Or they would have music on Friday afternoon when they had crafts and they would go out and play softball and they kind of had it Friday afternoon was a little bit more free time with the spelling bee and things like that. Um, I don't know what people think of when they think of music in the one room schools, So I'm not sure whether there's misinformation out there or not, but if somebody mentioned something, I could say, Oh yeah, that happened. Or Oh no, that happened. Or that (laughs) might've happened out East, but not in the Midwest. Um, Uh, Glory and I have been having a discussion about the stage curtains that have the advertising on them. We saw an awful lot of mm-hmm. them in in um Oklahoma and I said, I haven't seen any in Iowa. She says, I found a whole bunch in Iowa. I said, You're mm-hmm. kidding And because I'm talking about their stage productions and um lots of times the oral histories that I've taken, um, the students have put up a rope or a clothesline and then they just throw sheets over it and that's the front of the Schoolhouses, their stage, and they would sing songs and also do little plays and little um, recitations, things like that, in front of their um, their sheet yeah, <laughs> as, a, as a stage curtain. And sometimes, if they didn't have electricity, they would have to run um, electrical wiring over to the neighboring farm to run some lights. Lots of, lots of them would have long. I don't think that they were really extension cords, but they would run the electricity over to the neighbors and and electrify the school for that day.
1: Well, it... I could go on from there, but we are almost out of time. So I just want to thank you very much for coming on tonight, Pam, and sharing all about your excitement about music in the one-room schools. I'm so glad you're coming to uh, Iowa, and I hope that everybody who's listening to this from Iowa will want to come to uh, hear Pam's speeches at the Johnson County Historical Society. And if uh, they're not from Iowa and they'd be interested in having you to come talk, they could get a hold of, of you and uh, arrange something, right?
0: Oh, yes. I I love to go out, out anywhere and speak on many different things. So this is just one of my areas of expertise.
1: Okay. Well, thank you again, and I'm going to take you off uh, air right now, Pam, because I just want to very quickly say that the Johnson County Historical Society event is going to be between August 10th and August 14th, 2011, and you can find out more by contacting the Historical Society. And thank you very much, and I'll see you probably sometime tomorrow afternoon for a roving report and then next Monday for the State Fair Travel Times. Thank you and have a great night.